Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Scaffold, a new podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with David Grandorch. David is an architectural photographer and educator who is likely best known for his austere images of contemporary buildings in the UK and abroad. In fact, his photographic work covers much more ground, with an upcoming exhibition at the Architectural Association featuring a series of post-industrial landscapes he recorded in collaboration with the fellow photographer Jonathan Lovekin. In addition to his photographic work, David has been a lecturer in architecture for over two decades, and currently leads a diploma unit at the London Met, where he is also a senior lecturer in structure, construction, and materials. I met with David in January at my apartment in Bloomsbury, where he talked about, among other things, his formative early life experiences, his development as a photographer, and the strange positions he occupies both within and outside the field of architecture. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. I grew up in um, suburban London, uh, born in Hayes, it says on my passport on the border of Southall. Um, and uh, the life story, I suppose, goes um, that my father died when I was a year old. And he uh, was uh, an engineer, a civil engineer, uh, designing, at that time, the shells of uh, nuclear reactors. And he fell asleep at the wheel of a car and uh, my, um, my grandmother uh, also died of shock on finding out that uh, he died. And then uh, my poor mother had to deal with, you know, her husband and her mother dying kind of God. within a day. And this is, you know, um, you know, not special in any way. There are many uh, people who have have kind of complicated kind of upbringings. Um, but so there was definitely, at uh, the moment that I left home, um, a kind of, a real need for kind of reinvention. You know, I needed something kind of quite steady. And so I worked for a bank uh, for uh, a year. Meanwhile, I'd... Uh, chance and through a friendship to travel down through um, Europe um, or from Paris to Amsterdam through Middle Europe, Austria, Italy, Yugoslavia and Greece. Um, I did have lots of small adventures and these things are useful for young people. I got quite good at sleeping on the streets. I was quite unusual for a homeless that I showered at the stations every two days and uh, uh, I had traveller's checks in my pocket, you know. I just wanted to stay, you know, I wanted to have uh, this kind of reinvention occur. Mm. Yeah? Mm. To feel brave enough, you know, to be, feel brave enough to be itinerant and not be beholden to place. And that then extended to kind of homelessness in London. I kind of, I could have stayed with friends in suburbia, but I preferred to then do that, stay in hostels, um, and um, the kind of tenants came from all walks of life. So to discover all this about the kind of lives of others was really informative. 
that lives are fragile, the smallest little thing, sometimes it's not even your fault, or maybe it is in some ways, but it's fragile. There's always fantastic stories, of course. Horrible stories sometimes, but these people, you know, need talking to. What, what do you think drew you to this in the first place? Was it the kind of relatively sheltered suburban uh, well, my, my, my life wasn't sheltered and suburban. It was, uh, you know, it was aggressive and right. weird and uh, involved, uh, you know, belonging to sort of a, at the, the, the edges of football violence and everything. Okay. You know? And uh, very early, uh, as a, a young kid, I used to spend time in Soho. I used to um, just sort of fell in love. I mean, it was kind of very kind of Harry Potter thing, mm-hmm. you know. It's kind of magical, the city. And that was the bit I really wanted to be kind of part of. It was like there were these sort of eccentric people. Certainly when I was young, I attached myself to culture to, mm-hmm. to um, achieve a kind of kudos, which, so I felt that I could have exchanges with other people, you know? Okay. So I even went to the extent then of doing an A-level in art history. <laughs> really? which was fantastic. I did the same before going to university. Um, and so part of the experience in Paris, I did lots of things after this. I, I ran a home for mentally handicapped adults. Um, I worked on uh, kind of projects with, with druggies and kids. Um, I spent time in America working with children on summer camps. Uh, children who'd been kind of referred there by kind of welfare, you know, sort of uh, give their parents a break, you know, difficult, difficult lives. To be able to to hang out with families in the Bronx was just kind of a, you know, these were beautiful things which made you kind of love a kind of world culture. Uh-huh. To me, your, your uh, attraction to humanity, mm. the kind of messiness of, yeah. of uh, public life, and of people in general, would would imply more that you'd go on the route of portraiture or something, as opposed to <laughs> as opposed to architectural. You know, photography. this is one of the. Um, this comes up so often after um, I've given a lecture, and I show kind of very kind of austere portraits of yeah. cities. Uh, and landscapes uh, where there is no um, evident human presence, yet it's latent for me. Uh, And I hope there's a sensitivity and humanity in what I'm depicting. And, but this this thing where people say, there's no people there, you know. And I have to explain that, that this is to to accentuate that feeling I have about the city, about, I said it, this, this sense of magic. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that, that the buildings kind of can speak to us. And it's, it's one of my favourite things to do, is to walk or cycle through back streets of the city mm. and finding kind of amazing situations in the very kind of quotidian or infraordinary, you know. These are, I, I can get really excited by how uh, you can feel the intentionality of either the organisation that commissioned the building or the architect or the builder. You can just see that there was care. Mm-hmm. And I love those moments of the city. where. So maybe this brings us to the question of why architecture. Do you studied architecture in school after... Yeah, uh, your time, you know, organizing. And well, going back to the Barclay bit. So after this time in Paris, I also um, made friends there, taken by a wonderful woman called Celine, to La Roche et Genre, um, and I was amazed by the, um, like how little you could have. Like a tiled floor could be beautiful. That I remember going at one of the things that really caught me was the window catches, the little levers. For I mean, everything was so 
I've never seen this stuff before. Mm. What is this? Mm -hmm. Where did it come from? And it was a kind of absolute curiosity from this. And then I saw my friend Celine. Um, she was um, at the school at Bellevue, kind of listening to Miles Davis whilst drawing something. And I thought, wow, what? Sorry, that's a degree. <laughs> <laughs> and no, but it was I'm. It was more than that. By the time uh, I'd finished then, and our A-level, and a third of it was architecture. But I chose to go to what was the Polytechnic of North London. At this moment, going through all sorts of kind of conflicts with myself and the institution over what architectural education should be. I wanted them to be kind of both more theoretical and more pragmatic. Um, and I left at that moment I, uh, when I left university. Um, had you finished the course or did you leave no, 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 in frustration? No, 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 I got a, I got a, I played the game, I got a first class degree. All right. Uh, um, and, um, and then this kind of, the, the next stage of the transformation happens, because then you can, uh, I played for Cambridge. And what's interesting is that in our, Oxford and Cambridge are public institutions. Um, unlike, say, a private school. Um, and in fact, I'd like private schools to become, actually like them, become kind of into the public realm somehow, but just say, look, you can do excellence. So the bit I wanted to do, I wanted to touch this kind of bit of excellence like this. And I also wanted a kind of bit of status. You know, it meant something to, to do that. That's what I wanted. And when I went there, Actually, I realised I didn't want the status. And the great thing I learned about Cambridge, the thing I really learned, was I took a big chip off my shoulder about kind of privilege, because I met so many fragile human beings and realised that the weight of expectation on them was just such a cross to bear. Mm. And that was another um, uh, kind of sort of started a, a kind of thinking about how one could operate, which was to have very, very low expectations. Yeah, about to not about other people? Or? No, about everything. Just allow things to happen. So don't, um, like a kind of lack of ambition. Well, a lack of, if you, if I was witnessing people who I thought were privileged, and I thought, my God, you're not privileged because of this expectation. Why would I put that weight of expectation on myself? And f allow things to kind of happen in a kind of more accidental kind of way. To not have absolute surety. Now, this was a good time to have it because the value of land in London was low. Mm. Um, I was really fortunate that uh, a great friend and a consistent collaborator, Brian Greathead, he had a place in Shoreditch and I then kind of settled in there. And when this was, was this exactly? 1996. Okay. A kind of really beautiful moment in the city's history. There are some things when, you know, there's all this stuff about what's cool. It's not about that at all. It's about... Uh, I don't want to use the word freedom, because freedom, it's freedom from and freedom for. I think it's definitely a freedom for. Mm -hmm. It's freedom to, um, to make mistakes. So you could try out the things, and there wasn't necessarily a definitive sort of output to it. Okay, so you had at this point left Cambridge. Yeah. yeah. finished that yeah, well, degree, came back to London, yeah. living in Shoreditch now, and experimenting and failing. Yeah, and starting up discos, uh, starting up quiz night. So uh, kind of like a promoter in the... In yeah, the we just, yeah, but not, we, we weren't like that, me and Brian. We were like, we described ourselves as two Victorian gentlemen. Um, kind of like a straight Gilbert and George. And the club was called Thank You. 
which was came from gay parlay, which was after you'd after someone had given you a blowjob. Like, Thank you. Huh. So it was a kind of. Uh, it was. I mean. Ironic etiquette. Yeah. Um, and part of that, I mean, I'm a, a straight man who, when socialising, spends the majority of his time in gay space, which is kind of interesting. But it's also, it's kind of part of loyalty as well. That part of what? Sorry. Part of uh, kind of loyalty, loyalty to the kind of experiences I had when I was younger, when I was looking for kind of um, kind of role models from football hooligans to uh, kind of drag queens. Mm-hmm. And then just went, wow, these people are so intelligent, quick-witted, uh, fun, brave, and they look fucking good. So in addition to being this DJ or nightclub promoter and uh, academic, uh, you were also, of course, a burgeoning architectural photographer. How did that come about? When I was studying in my undergraduate years, I met a man called Edward Woodman. Yes. And Edward was the most incredible kind of mentor, as much as politically as in terms of practicing photography. And the, I kind of, you know, I kind of fell in love with Edward. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I mean, in, in terms of he was just such an amazing human being. So just, to, you met Edward Woodman during your undergraduate yeah, degree. Yeah, it was yeah. a complete accident. This is the whole thing about it. It's really, really accidental. Hmm. Uh, it was not in, there was no intention anywhere. It was about reacting to a situation and becoming interested in something. And it was a kind of a love of books more than anything, I realised I, and this is a kind of sort of worrying start, but I enjoyed a kind of intelligent commentary and some sort of compelling intelligent photography about a project could could teach me more about it before or after I'd visited a building. So we... I We've thought, just transitioned to, from books and commentary to all of a sudden photography. What's in between that? The, 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 okay, the bit in between was, the, 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 to get to there, was meeting Edward mm-hmm. on a field trip to Paris. And uh, I realized I had a sort of an eye. And I like this idea of the frame as well. The way the frame can make an argument about what you exclude and what you include. Very early lesson learned. And then the kind of the stuff about useful information, the practical issues of photography, I learned by assisting Edward. So he was working with, um, I think, the best artists of the day. Uh, Rachel Whiteread, Helen Chadwick, he'd photographed Freeze. And he would document their work, but yeah. then also forge the, creative relationships. No, no, he wasn't like that at all. He was, he, 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 he wasn't, you know, this idea of creative relationships is a new thing. This was, well, they were, I mean, these were truly creative. They're not like a kind of, we'd market creativity these I know, days, yeah, which I can't stand. Um, but he did have, have really important um, personal relationships with these artists and it was based on mutual respect and I got to see some really seminal bits of art early on with because of Edward mm-hmm. and but also understand the rigour that was required in working with recording this on film very different to a kind of contemporary digital world where one might have to make three exposures on a sheet of film Mm-hmm. You know, over two minutes to allow the picture to see what the eye sees. And because our pupil uh, opens and closes, when we, we look at a scene, uh, we are uh, addressing different darknesses and brightnesses all the time. With a camera, the aperture is fixed. So it's kind of interesting that often things have to be relit. To, to do that. 
So just going back, you were learning about the mechanics of photography yeah. with Edward, and then also to a certain extent the mechanics of uh, the social world of art and the relationship between the photographer and the artist. For Dealing example. with how you deal with how you um, should conduct yourself with other people, uh, which is, you know, what is a client and what, what are your responsibilities and how can you, you uh, yeah, how your work is moral as well, that you're, you're doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's, you know, I, I have been fortunate enough to be kind of choosy. This, so this thing started with learning, learning the kind of mechanics through that and then strangely just being asked to do things that I was doing that it was people who were uh, friends um, at Cambridge, uh, strangely had started practices and commissioned things. So Cambridge, I hadn't realised it would be a network, but it oh. was. This idea that I'm outside architecture is actually mistaken. I'm, I'm very much within it, both in, in terms of, uh, um, I'm a strange practitioner. And then I do it occasionally, and when I do, I try to uh, make a kind of technological jump for myself. Mm-hmm. And this one's about the the first project I built with my students at EcoBuild. That's a Before we talk more about your teaching work, I just yeah. want to understand at what point you realized that photography would be the primary vocation. I think... Uh, in that year after college, I realised I was going to be doing it more because I was just being asked to do it. I've never had a business card. I've always just been asked, and I've always allowed it to fund taking more photographs. And why do you do this? You end up kind of creating an archive. I have a massive digital archive now, which is about from scanning this. So what I was doing was simultaneously uh, just trying to make work, and then suddenly being asked to make work, and then being able to fund that work. I was making, I was trying to be a kind of independent photographer. Um, And then I worked with uh, lots and lots, collaborated with lots of really amazing architects. I've been incredibly, incredibly privileged to work with. Um, People like Caruso Sinjin, Serge and Bates, um, Tony Fratton, these were kind of early kind of supporters of me, which was really nice. and really 6A architects where my collaboration has been maybe more than just photographic, it's been conversational. Mm-hmm. It's been as a sort of friends and collaborators over the year. That's, and that was, Tom was someone who was in, uh, uh, I was at Cambridge with, he was in the year below. Okay. And, and that was an incredible, uh, we shared kind of literature in common more than architecture back then and it's, it's, it's kind of really interesting how mm. those conversations have helped over the years. Just the, these names that you're bringing up, it sounds like in a way you're almost anointed within a certain, a particular scene of architecture. And yeah, uh, which was of course linked to other people as the Whisperers, whisperers exactly. etc. Um, and then th- that time I was, I was quite familiar, not, not as familiar as I am now, with the consequences of that form of photography. It was a good place to start. What are the consequences? Well, what happens to, firstly, is that that photography and within architecture is a kind of commercial exchange. Mm -hmm. It's about um, kind of selling something. (coughs) And even though I like some advertising, I didn't want to kind of sell something. So I don't want to be kind of too serious about this, but there had to be some kind of uh, intentionality to the picture taking about how one would, you know, where, what kind of spatial register do you work with? The consequences of people constantly making, using, I think, with a wider lens, which kind of can please, can, give pleasing distortions and accentuations to what's actually very, um, uh, you know, banal architecture. And then also this kind of use of uh, kind of light 
And I suppose one thing I really inherited from the Dusseldorf school was this, this kind of diffuse light. It's actually quite beautiful outside at the moment, mm -hmm. where this very thin cirrus cloud is just softening the sun. Mm -hmm. you know? And what's interesting is that you can then give kind of equal weight to everything in the scene. So one thing I was I started I was really interested in seeing it as part of its context. And only intelligent architects could get that. I was really interested in it being actually formally quite austere. Uh, but yeah, I was also interested in there being something slightly humorous in it. This was often done through latent occupancy, the kind of patheticness of Mm -hmm. something which would intrude on the frame. You know, like a builder's van, kind of right in front of the entrance. It was fine by me, you know? Because this was part of the reality of the city. So there was a kind of, and yet, I was also taking very correct photographs, you know? And I was trying to take them, like if you see a kind of very centralised Becker's composition, I was trying to be even more precise about the space that could be given between the sky you see between the edges of a building, the profile of a building. And that is something over 20 years I have mined, you know, really fine-tuned a kind of way of, of, of how do you show something as an object? How do you show a building as kind of part of a context? Uh, not through a fucking drone, you know, <laughs> but through the experience of the the person who is kind of kind of walking in the, the city, you know, it's the thing that you pass by in. Uh, I did um, a kind of retrospective uh, lecture, but with a quite specific focus, which was called remote. Uh, it was about periphery kind of practices about people who are peripheral to architecture. Was, this was in at the uh, Royal Academy in Copenhagen, and. The head of school there at dinner afterwards, he said, he says, it's amazing because all of your work is, it's like it all comes from, it all has the same voice, it's so connected. He says, your buildings look like your photography and your photography looks like your buildings. <laughs> <laughs> and it is, it's, it's about you, it's, it's, it's what anyone who wants to do who's working with a creative medium is you find a voice. Now, we're always... Everyone is, is kind, of, kind of concerned about their originality, their authenticity, uh, their ambition, yeah? And wants to do something which is creative and, and which is new. Now, I'm utterly sceptical about novelty. I think that's okay to say, let's copy, and then we can have a material shift, and then it transforms it. And then it can be subjected to spontaneous inventions and adaptations. And this is kind of how we really de design. Mm -hmm. In terms of your uh, career in, in all its like protean forms, who do you find you are copying the most? Like, are there any models for the kind of practice that you have? Um, you learn from one's mentors, but then One's mentors aren't just the people you meet, they are often the authors you look at. So I've, I've, I've had the privilege of meeting Thomas Struth and speaking on the same table as him at the conference. But, you know, I don't know him. But I've learnt so much from him, you know, by looking very carefully at his pictures. I like care a lot. I like, I like a certain... You like what? Care, a certain precision. People look at Wolfgang Tillman's photographs and think that, you know, it's all about informality. They are so precise. <laughs> you know, he's, I love Tillman's work and the kind of sort of tacky reality of cities he sometimes throws at you and the incredibly humane situations he sometimes reveals. You mentioned drone photography, and I just can't help but think of people like Iwan Bond, for example, because he's obviously a very commercial photographer. Whereas your practice is centered more on an artistic lineage, mm. where you're defining a canon of architectural photography yeah. and trying to insert yourself Architectural photography being appropriated almost in a Duchampian manner by, as an art practice, in its early days, um, you know, photography always wanted to become art. Uh, Desperately so, 
And then it was funny that people started making arty photographs. Um, great contrast. Or, and so it went through all these little experiments. And then it kind of realised that it just had to be itself. To just do what a camera does. And I think that was an amazing moment. The Beckers were really important in kind of lifting the sophistication of what an image means, but more than that, the kind of issue of them looking at types, creating a typology, working in a very systematic manner. It was very attuned to the interests of conceptual and minimal art at the time, and this gentle sort of move this in, in, into this, on this incredible project. It looks... What's amazing is that sort of like a Google or Bing image spread like looks like a kind of Becker's array now. Mm -hmm. And if you if you Google the Becker's and you get arrays of arrays. <laughs> <laughs> and of course their arrays had great intentionality about looking, uh, kind of understanding kind of formal... Um, and functional uh, similarities and differences between types. It also talked about the kind of universality of this part of the human condition, which was for us to industrialize, and how you had families of forms which were shared. So basically, a cooling tower, which is you put in hot water, and then it becomes a spray. Uh, so it loses its heat to the air as it's going through a timber structure, and then it goes back. Um, around the belt of the furnace and the steelworks. And so this has a function to perform, and then it works with kind of physics in the, the, the kind of stack effect of a chimney. And so these forms, which are kind of cones or um, effectively upside-down V-shapes, they have profiles, but they're, they're a kind of hood which is trying to suck air underneath to, to take the heat away. It's funny, just listening to you talk now, I've, I really feel like I'm hearing an autodidact. I'm hearing a polymath talk. Yeah. And just drawing a parallel or a connection now between this discussion of first we're talking about a, a kind of artistic canon. Yeah. We're talking about uh, key figures in a movement um, or a particular school of thought around yeah. photography. Yeah. And then we're talking about particular particular subject matter of the photographs. Yeah. And then we're talking about the mechanics of those objects in the photographs. Yeah. And then that brings us all the way, I think, to maybe your current teaching mm. um, now, which is if I can just try and like <coughs> um, make that bridge. You're looking at timber translations of industrial architecture and cooling towers in particular. <laughs> what is one? There were um, gravel mills, uh, water towers, grain elevators, uh -huh. were the four types. And this is something, I just want to talk about this broader environmental agenda. I'm not a hippie, I'm a realist. And I always thought, well, this was important, so is the embodied energy of a building, but not in a kind of like hippy-dippy way. I think utterly pragmatic, how do you build large buildings in the city? Um, and then you build them with the least environmental impact. So the project we did about the Beckers this year was to allow students to understand the work of some quite serious practitioners from another medium. Yet it was also, we worked with uh, Thomas Brotsky, who's a brilliant young Swiss engineer from Urban, to engineer these structures, which were from 29.5 to uh, 60 metres tall and saying, how can you build uh, structures that were made from concrete or steel uh, and build them in contemporary forms of engineered timbers from cross land to glue land to LVLs and so on. And it's really interesting that this te these technologies are kind of moving in, in kind of places. And in my own little experiments, I've always tried to say, at a kind of almost domestic scale, how can you push this, this technology of having trapped carbon in a building 
but my environmental thinking was massively affected by readings of James Lovelock. I'm at the moment reading Bruno Latour, uh, Facing Gaia, which is the great uh, French writer who, I mean, Irénée Scalbe, who introduced Latour to to uh, to six A, and their kind of incredible um, first kind of publication, never modern, exactly. but from we have never been modern. And Latour is interested in the disconnect between kind of nature and culture. And so I'm just kind of I've I've started this because I was just like, oh my God, love luck! I've read everything about sort of the Earth system, and uh, and and I find his idea utterly compelling but so this was a chance to say uh, to do two things to look at the things which are kind of helping destroy us which was this industry mm-hmm. uh, this kind of exploitation of, which industry is that actually well let's talk about say grey elevators um, so industrialised agriculture Sure. The amount of soil erosion and okay. because of this. this is all part of it. Yeah. Um, the carbon emissions of cement works, six uh, percent rock white and so on. Um, so, it was, so what was interesting about this thing? I, this is a project I've been wanting to teach because I'm interested in what students can learn as architects from people who. One, the, the big thing is kind of typology. Architects are interested in typology as the Beckett's concerned. Architects are also interested in seriality. They're interested in repetition and rhythm. They're interested in profile. And it's, it's interesting hearing you talk about architecture and architects as them and they, um, as if you don't see yourself necessarily as an architect first. And what I feel this is like, a very good observation. Yeah. What I'm hearing you describe, the way I'm hearing you describe architecture, is as an anthropologist of architects or something, yeah. which is a really interesting position to be able to inhabit by way of your work as a photographer. There are so many different architects. I mean, they, they, one, they have different design methodologies, different ways of managing their office, uh, different ideas about who they should employ different ideas about what they should achieve, different moralities. Um, I mean, this, the anthropology, I'm so glad I've got, you've given me an idea, and I realise a little bit of what I've been doing is thinking about what it, you know, how one should practice, because I've, I've seen so many different forms of practice. I mean, there's, there's many things which are common to them, but they do create very different environments for for working. It's very privileged to, to see and understand this. So I'm seeing, I'm probably quite different from most photographers, and that, as you notice, I'm kind of somehow outside of architecture, looking into it and mulling over the different forms of practice. And yet I'm inside of it more than most photographers, in that I have a relationship with these architects because they know I'm a teacher and thinker and writer about architecture and buildings. I mean, I do many building reviews for mm-hmm. a painful work, you know. <laughs> it's very difficult to say new things when you're reviewing a building. So what was interesting to relate these practices was working with young practice field and fowls, very supportive of, of young practices. You know, they came, you know, these are practices that started after the crash. And uh, people are brave enough to do that, you know, I think it's wonderful. And, uh, and I wrote about um, Philbin Fowles' kind of office down at, self-built office down at Waterloo. It was actually built by an old student of mine. But it was when I was writing about it and I, I had a little thesis about a kind of a lean architecture that someone going before. So this idea of, of looking at everything from ideas really purloined from 6A's work, which is how you can work with the existing, that the whole world has been built on really and everything's kind of adaptive reuse. So in terms of this leanness... Right, so just to, to give listeners a sense of what you mean by leanness, you have, a, you have 10 tenets that you share yeah. with your students every year. 
No, that was just this year. Just this year. It was so those were developed in writing the article about this building that was made by Field and Fells. I see. So I kind of I established them there and then just slightly tuned them. I have a kind of image, you know, about it. And the the second principles are saying, you know, how can we build um, architecture that obviously uses less energy but doesn't do it through kind of complex servicing? The idea that uh, human beings would be willing to have less, because we are going to have less. We shall have to get used to having less, especially kind of financially, since the amount of money that's moving kind of upstairs into the hands of the few in a way that it hasn't happened since the Industrial Revolution. So I think if one is an intellectual, one is aware of the world, one has to engage with these really significant shifts in what humanity's experience are. Architecture connects with that very strongly, doesn't it? What steered you away from becoming an architect, first and foremost, from potentially starting your own practice, for example? Three things. One was that I never had the money, never the kind of backing, never had the confidence, the drive. It was that lack of ambition. I would just allow things to happen rather than, you know. Mm-hmm. Two was that I suppose is, uh, yeah, it's like being in an office all day it was anathema to me. Um, I'd love being on site all the time, and, and then suddenly architects weren't allowed to be on site, you know. Mm-hmm. And. I really enjoy builders, not contractors. And I didn't have the kind of balls to deal with the kind of the kind of fights, you know, the constant war of attrition. I'm too soft for that. And yet, I think I'm quite good at teaching people to have the skills that they can be in that situation, and also kind of have a sense of humour. Just say, look, it's just stuff, you know. And to not get too kind of uptight about not winning all the time, you know. Um, and it is; it's become for many. It's become more difficult for students when they finish now. But in some ways, they have to professionalise a little bit earlier because they can't afford to make the mistakes that I was. I had the space to make when I was a young person finishing college. There isn't that space unless you've got a private income. Mm. I want to talk a bit about class mm. and how that for you mediates your relationship to architecture. Um, it relates my mediation to lots of other things in the world. In architecture, um, I suppose yeah, one of the things that, that part of biography about spending two years in Cambridge mm-hmm was learning how to um, have conversations with people from different social strata and incomes. So I'm really happy in a kind of working class estate. I don't feel I'm some middle class invader. I'm there. And if I were with a conventionally kind of middle class group, we belong, you have the same discourses, we eat the same bread probably. There are different types of super rich. Some, it's about inherited wealth, and there was a certain kind of class thing. But I don't think it infects architecture that much. I think that, I mean, there are certain instances where, you know, kind of absurd classicists are. There are also the sort of Jason Rees mob type sort of practitioners. But, you know, you think of it, you know, Norman Foster's, you know, the uber-capitalist architect, working-class boy from up north, you know. Mm. So, um, but I think what class gives is, is a certain kind of confidence in dealing with certain things. So, for instance, if one is dealing with the planners in the cities, a certain upbringing gives one a certain confidence to, in how to address that situation. Um, and classes... Is, is both how others see you and how you see yourself. So I'm kind of, uh, I think it's very strong in Britain still. I think many institutions are, I mean, <laughs> there aren't just issues of class, there are issues, I mean, I, I think greater issues of gender in relationship to 
um, how students give privilege to some and not others. I mean, even in the BBC, <laughs> you know, you can pay, you know, the anomalies and pay and so on and so on. And these things are ridiculous in the 21st century, absolutely ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very conscious of that. I, I think there's a sense of... Um, I do have a kind of sense of justice in that way. Another majorly formative experience was being in... I got an amazing commission to photograph British Council buildings in Western North Africa. And I went to Nigeria, uh, Sierra Leone, Senegal, uh, in one kind of trip. And Sierra Leone, I've been kind of giving money since I was 16, that kind of constant standing order, whatever, whatever the property situation, they get some money. And uh, it was amazing to be there. The war had finished. Um, uh, and I got to see like how the world works for the first time. You realised how people got by on so little, you know, and it affected me. It affected my, you know, I was just I suppose becoming aware of the pain of others. And something a friend of mine from Jordan said to me there was over at Christmas. And she said, "Do you suffer from this problem that?" She says, "I've noticed another." Photographers, you get slightly depressed about the world. I said, well, I, I, strangely, I don't get depressed. My natural tendency is to smile, you know, and hmm. to go, wow, mm -hmm. you know, isn't life amazing? Isn't the world amazing still? The world is still beautiful, which I've used as the title for the exhibition. Right. I find beauty everywhere. It's still, it's a kind of insistence, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but against all the shit that gets, this, this, is, this was, I gave a, a lecture in Norway around this and there was a kind of guy who was from uh, Oslo who ran a you know, big advertising business mm. and he just said I know he says, the world is still beautiful and he, he said yeah despite exactly it's like despite all the shit it's this insistence that we have to constantly find beauty this is this is kind of part of the human condition this is my chance now to ask you about your aesthetics I think yeah because a lot of your photographs do you need another cigarette no. Okay. <laughs> a lot of your photographs are very melancholic. Yeah. They're very gloomy, and that has something to do with the fact that most of the projects are in London and the weather and climate here. Is... It's about the climate, but yeah, I could shoot it on a sunny day, but I don't. Yeah. Um, the intense melancholy, uh, the, or the intensification of melancholy in my photographs, was certainly around the time that I was went through initial kind of stage of uh, kind of feeling concerned that the way we lived didn't at all consider the consequences of us exploiting resources in African countries and the fact that they got no money from it. I was disturbed by this. Um, and then thinking about the consequences of massive kind of changes in in the kind of quality of the surface of the earth and the atmosphere. So if you think about that, it was kind of partly based upon a, a genuine kind of personal sadness, but then as a way of, of, of allowing me to talk about it to other people. And there would be a sort of consolation, in, there's some kind of consolation in the picture. Hmm. Um, you know, one shouldn't despair of these situations, but you give a kind of certain visual cons consolation. A phrase that has been used to describe your work um, that maybe you've, you deployed first was this idea of visual solace. Hmm. I found that really helpful in giving me a kind of way into thinking about your photography generally. And I wonder if, to kind of conclude the conversation, you could talk a little bit more about that idea of visual solace as opposed to um, optimism. When someone is looking at the kind of complexity of the world, one can obviously become kind of sad about it. One can become sad about one's own life. 
or one's feeling a loss of power within that situation. So I think visual solace as a way of coping with one's uh, ability to deal with these, these kind of traumas, uh, it's a better way to do it than, um, than taking drugs. And, and I should conclude by saying I'm still, given the amount of scene, I am still a, a happy pessimist and uh, I assert the right to, to be one. <laughs> Thank you, David. I think that's a good place to end. Thanks for listening to Scaffold. The show is produced by me, Matthew Blunderfield, and the theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Rayworth of the band Stanley Park. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. Thanks to David Grandorge. His upcoming exhibition is called Infra and will be on display at the Architectural Association Gallery from the 1st of March. And thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.